so good to see you this morning. My name's Cameron, one of the pastors here. And welcome to uh, City Light Siberia, apparently, based on the uh, weather conditions outside. Got a word from Colossians 2, 11 through 15, that I'm calling Alive in Christ. So if you've got your Bibles, open or activate them to Colossians 2, 11 through 15. And as Willie did, I need to acknowledge that it is Baptism Sunday, y'all. It's an exciting day. Now listen, you got to do better. The first crowd... Came in out of the blizzard, a lot of frowny faces. Let's get a little bit excited this morning. Baptism Sunday. And also, thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah, thank you, my wife. She's down there in the front. I heard that. Now, I also want to welcome those of you who may be guests here. I realize many of you are here to be a champion, a friend, a a supporter, maybe you're a family member to a baptizee. Just, I hope you feel welcome. We're so glad you're here. And just know that your presence means a lot to us and to these people being baptized. But before we get to our baptisms, I need to tell you about a man known as Mean Mayford, uh, the baddest man to ever live on Coker Creek Mountain in East Tennessee. And in addition to living on a mountain, Mayford was once a mountain of a man, six foot two, six foot tall, uh, a quarter Native American. He was always savagely tan, and he logged. He literally cut trees for a living, so Papa was always country strong. And his favorite after-work activities were drinking and fighting. Listen, he legit used to bare-knuckle box, fight, and he had the reputation of being unbeatable. He was a bad man. Well, unfortunately, his aggression carried over to his home life. And over time, he became a raging alcoholic, and he abused his wife and neglected his kids for years. And the kids often even went hungry because he also had a gambling addiction. He would squander the family's resources. Now, people in the community, they were aware of the family's plight, but they were afraid to intervene because they were afraid of Mayford. He was indeed a bad man. Well, eventually, Mayford's son, Victor, became a mountain of a man in his own right. And during his senior year of high school, he completed his black belt in karate. And so one fateful night, Mayford came home especially drunk, raised his hands toward his family, but this time Victor intervened and said, I've had enough. And he challenged his old man to a fight in the front yard. And Mayford lost his undefeated record that night as his son gave him the beating of his life. Well, after healing up and laying low for a couple of weeks, Mayford shocked the community of Coker Creek in what proved to be yet another fateful night. A local church was having a tent revival. Do you all know what that is in the Midwest? This evangelistic gathering on a sports field. And Mayford made his way to the field, limped into the tent, and sat on the very back row. And he listened listened attentively to the message being proclaimed, the gospel message being proclaimed. And miraculously, that powpaw, my powpaw, mean Mayford deputy, he gave his life to Jesus Christ that night. And so what's remarkable is, is that he left a brand new man, once a bad man, once a bad man to his family, but because of the gospel... My grandpa left a brand new man. In his words, the butt whipping he received that night was a wake-up call. In the midst of his physical brokenness, he realized he was also spiritually broken. He knew he was not the man he needed to be. When he was sober, he was racked by his guilt. But no matter how hard he tried to change, he could never kick his addictions in his own power. So now desperate, he thought he might give religion a try, so he went to the tent But listen, church, he left that night not with religion, but with a brand new relationship with Jesus Christ. 
and it revolutionized his life, and it even changed our family. I mean, listen, this man, he drank starting at age 15 and smoked for 40 years. And the very night he came home, he tore the cabinets open, poured out his whiskey, threw away his cigarettes. And his testimony is that God took away every impulse he ever had for those addictive substances. And what's crazy, he said when he put that last pack of Marlboros in the trash can, he even smelled in a supernatural way this fragrant aroma of apple blossoms, newness of life coming into his system. Yeah, my mom has often told me that the man that she knew as her dad is not the same man I knew as my papaw, where he was harsh and sometimes abusive toward the kids. I knew him to be nothing but tender and loving toward the grandkids. Now listen, he still has a lot of rough edges. Uh, an imperfect Christian, immature Christian in many ways. But he is a fundamentally different man. That's what the gospel does. So epitomized in the life of my grandpa is the big idea we find in today's passage. And here it is. Jesus makes us spiritually alive. Christ makes us brand new creations by welcoming us in and by forgiving us of our sins. And so the bad news is our sins, they separate us from God and one another. They wreck relationships. They leave us deadened. They leave us spiritually incomplete on the inside. But Jesus makes us spiritually alive by calling us into a life-giving relationship with himself. And he forgives us from all of our sins. And see, the Colossians needed this reminder because false teachers were trying to persuade them to find their spiritual completion elsewhere. Remember back in verse 8 that Paul told them to not be taken captive by empty and deceitful philosophies. He tells them to not be persuaded by what he terms human traditions. Then he reminds them in verses 9 and 10 that the fullness of God dwells in bodily form in the person of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we find our completeness in him. Listen, it's futile to look elsewhere for life because Jesus alone gives us new life. He fills us with his life. But yet our sinful propensity is to look elsewhere, isn't it, for life? So might I ask you to be real honest this morning in your heart. Where else are you tempted to look for spiritual completion? It could be that you too are trying to soothe the guilt you feel through human traditions, religious activities. You've admitted that you're a mess and now you're doing double time trying to make yourself come alive. I mean, you're even tucking in your shirt now. You're coming to a church gathering like this one. And you're reading your Bible, doing everything you can do in your power to be a good person. But here's what you have to realize. The Bible was never designed to make you a better person. The Bible's ultimate purpose is to disclose the only good person to ever live, namely Jesus Christ. And the only way you can have newness of life is to have his goodness credited to your account. Or maybe you're here today, and maybe like my grandpa, you're on the verge of giving up. Your sin has wrecked your life, ruined your relationships, and you're tired of trying because it feels like when you take two steps forward, you take three steps backwards. Well, let me say to you, if you're here, if you're living, if you're breathing, there is still the opportunity to experience redemption because if God can save Mayford Debity, he can save anybody in this room. The power to be saved doesn't depend on you and your efforts. The power to be saved depends on the sovereign, supernatural power of God. 
And Jesus is in the business of making the vilest sinner clean. See, dear Lord, I want you to know this morning that Jesus Christ is able to change hearts. And so in verses 11 through 15, Paul describes for us how it is that people like you and I come to find their completion in Christ. And so my prayer this morning is that the truth of this text will become a reality in the hearts of everybody present here this morning. And so how do we become spiritually alive? Well, it's through the work of Christ. And through the work of Jesus, we get, number one, connected to Christ. Here's how it happens. Number one, we get spiritual life by, first of all, being connected to Christ. Now, as Paul teaches us how we become complete in Christ, he chooses an interesting Old Testament metaphor. He chooses the Old Testament rite of circumcision as his metaphor. So go ahead and turn to your neighbor this morning and say, circumcision. Go ahead. Okay, that was really awkward. I don't know why y'all did that this morning. Uh, As a reminder, circumcision served as the old covenant sign that you were a part of God's chosen people. Remember, after God renewed his covenant promise with Abraham, which included the promise of land and descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, uh, he called on Abraham and all of his male descendants to be circumcised as a sign of solidarity, as a sign of unity with God. And so every time that Abraham looked down and saw a newly revealed portion of his anatomy, he was reminded of the great revelation that he was in relationship with God. And that remarkably, the promises of God would come to pass through his seed. Now, why did Paul pick such an awkward metaphor in this text? Well, remember the false teaching. And the false teaching the Colossians were facing was probably this amalgamation between pagan mysticism and Jewish legalism. So because Paul mentions it here, it's probable that false teachers were encouraging circumcision, physical circumcision, as a way of being complete in Jesus. And so Paul says, in Christ you were circumcised. But notice in verse 11 he says, It was a circumcision made without hands. Now, that's different. Circumcision was always made with human hands. That is, unless you get tangled up trying to cross a barbed wire fence or something like that. It's okay to laugh. It's snowing, and uh, we need to loosen up just a little bit. But here, Paul is pointing us back to what the right is meant to represent. A loving and an obedient relationship with God. That's what God desires. And so even in the Old Testament, God was interested in right heart affections. He was interested in right attitudes more so than just right actions and religious activity. But we know that the people of Israel, they were notoriously rebellious. So thankfully, we get this beautiful promise in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. The Lord your God will, listen, circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul, and live. And so, City Light Paul, speaking of this kind of circumcision, it's what theologians simply call conversion. And conversion is this supernatural work of God where he works in our hearts to produce repentance and faith. I mean, I think in some sense we realize we're sinners, we see the brokenness inside of us, but we will never be truly broken over our sins Unless the Holy Spirit intervenes and breaks our heart for our sins. 
And I would even submit to you that we're so dead in our sins that we won't place our faith in Jesus unless the Holy Spirit breaks, up, breaks in and gives us faith to put in Christ. So Paul is speaking here using circumcision of the fundamental change of heart that believers experience that's wrought by the Holy Spirit. And understand this change of heart is impossible without the cross work of Jesus. And so this Old Testament promise of conversion was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Notice the end of verse 11. By putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And so Paul shifts the metaphor. The circumcision of Christ refers to his death on the cross. So here's how this works out. In our natural and sinful condition, we are cut off from God. And our sins set us up to receive God's wrath. But out of his great love for us and out of a desire to be in relationship with us, Jesus took our punishment that we deserved on his shoulders on the cross. Listen, here's how this plays in. Though he was innocent, he was cut off from God because of our disobedience. And so now the glorious news of the gospel is we can be reconnected to God through the circumcision of Christ. That is... Christ sacrificed his entire body of flesh to secure your salvation. And through that good work, we get the privilege of being God's new covenant people through his atoning work. And so now Paul's going to explain what actually happens in this spiritual circumcision. Notice verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So church, I love this because we have a built-in illustration of what happens when we get converted. Uh, Paul uses baptism as a metaphor to give us a tangible picture of what happens internally when we trust our lives to Jesus. And so baptism is a physical act, as we'll see in just a few moments, that points to a spiritual reality. And the spiritual reality it points to is something known as union with Christ. It's a glorious reality. Listen, the Christian experience is so much more than simply trying to follow the teaching of Jesus, trying to emulate his lifestyle. If you're trying that, stop, because we can't do that in our own power. You can't do that apart from God's help. But when we trust in Jesus, God indwells us through the person of the Holy Spirit. And and so Jesus, as we've been learning in Colossians, is the Lord of creation and new creation. And what's remarkable is when you trust in him, that great God lives literally within your heart. And he causes you to come alive spiritually. The life of Jesus is now our life. And though it's incredibly mysterious, Paul says that we even participated with him in his death. In that, when Christ died, our old way of living is dead. The rebellious man died with him. And then when Jesus was raised from the dead, we were also raised up with him in newness of life. So when this happens, you do get eternal life. You do get to live forever with him. But here, Paul is referencing our present life. Listen, once you're a believer in Jesus, you have the same resurrection power that raised Christ from the dead flowing in your body right now. 
He enables us to, to walk out this newness of life through His Spirit because we're in union with Jesus. And then Paul makes it clear here that we receive this new life through faith. Notice again, faith in the powerful working of God. See, since he's using baptism as a metaphor, he wants to make sure we, we get this reality that baptism is a symbol, not a sacrament. It's a symbol, not a sacrament. What I mean by that is we don't gain favor with God. We don't earn merit with God through our good works or our religious rites. Years ago, I heard an old preacher say this. You can be baptized until every tadpole in the river knows your social security number. And if you don't know Jesus, though, all you do is come out of wet center. It's not through a rite. That is not the way you get uh, made new through Jesus Christ. It's a gift we receive. We say this often, but we need to say it over and over again because we need to hear it. Salvation is not something we achieve. It's a gift we receive. We become new creations in Christ only when we trust in Christ's powerful work on our behalf. And so I, too, was baptized as a 10-year-old on July 4th, 1993, and then we had a hot dog cook-off to celebrate. And I got baptized not because I got, to not get connected to God, but I got baptized because I got connected to God at a VBS, a vacation Bible school, just a few weeks prior. And as I made my way into the clear waters of Conasaugie Creek, I really got baptized in the creek, y'all, on July 4th. I didn't get baptized to receive spiritual cleansing. I got baptized to show forth to the world the spiritual cleansing that the blood of Christ secured for me when I placed my faith in him. And as the old preacher in a suit and tie led me by the hand, literally had a suit and tie on, into the waist-deep water, lit Marlboro Red in the other hand, and as he placed both his hands on me to baptize me, it was an appropriate symbol. Now, we shouldn't baptize ourselves because we can't save ourselves. We are dependent on the work of another, namely the work of Jesus Christ. And as I closed my eyes and as he plunged me beneath the cold water, it was an appropriate symbol because in a very real way, when I placed my faith in Jesus, he had cleansed me. And the old Cameron, the old little mean red-headed 10-year-old Cameron was buried with Christ in baptism. And then when he lifted me up out of the water, and when I took my first breath of air, it was an appropriate symbol. Because of my faith in Jesus, I then had the living and breathing life of Christ flowing through my lungs. And then at the end, when the amazing grace was sing and the last amen was said, just before the hot dogs were served, when kids begin to cannonball into the creek and swing off rope swings, it was an appropriate symbol because baptism is a celebration of the new work that Jesus has wrought in our lives. Now, we have forbidden cannonballs this morning, though you probably love me to see me dive off in that. But listen, it's okay to get a little crazy. I give you pastoral permission to get a little rowdy at the end of the gathering when we baptize because it's a celebration of brand new life in Jesus. So listen, if you're here today, if you're looking for a brand new start, you realize your life's a bit of a mess, understand that your first step is not moral improvement or performing religious rites or being baptized. Paul has made it clear that we cannot experience personal transformation in our own power. Your very first step is to simply humble your heart and to admit your need for a Savior. The only hope you have of true transformation, 
of becoming a brand new creation is that the Lord of new creation takes up residence in your heart. And that's precisely what he does. It's glorious news. When we turn from our sins and trust our lives to him. So even now, as you listen to this redneck from East Tennessee preach, if something's happening in your heart, if you're being convicted, if something inexplicable is going on, you've got a newfound distaste for sin and a newfound delight for Jesus, you didn't get there in your own power. That's a supernatural act of God. So please move on that. Turn from your sins and trust in Jesus before you enter again into this blizzardous cold on your way out. So in order for us to experience spiritual completion, uh, Jesus works in our hearts to connect us to his heart, to give us union with him. And secondly, through the work of Christ, we get, number two, freed from sin. We get freedom from sin. And we see this in verses 13 through 15. Now, in the beginning of verse 13, we're reminded of humanity's spiritual condition apart from Jesus. And it's really, really bad news. Notice Paul says, And you, who were dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh. See, we can't move toward God because we have zero power to do so. Everybody, apart from Jesus, our sins have rendered us spiritually dead. In case you weren't aware, dead people can't do nothing. Not a thing, not anything. See, you're not going to ask an individual to come over to your house for a LaCroix. Apparently, that's the drink of the Midwest, or at least the drink of City Light. I hate this stuff, but we drink it around here all the time. But you're not going to ask somebody over for a drink who has flatlined because of cardiac arrest. First of all, they need a defibrillator applied to their body before they can take you up on that offer. So similarly, we can't move into fellowship with God until he first acts to make us alive. So in point one, we discussed how God makes us alive by circumcising us spiritually, by changing our hearts. But here we get more details about what is entailed in making us come alive. And verse 13b says, God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. I mean, what a liberating reality. We come to experience spiritual completion in Jesus as he wipes away all of our sins, as he forgives every single trespass that we've committed against him. And then in verses 14 and 15, we discover two aspects of sin that we get liberation from. So first of all, we are freed from guilt, the guilt associated with sin. Look again at verse 14. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So in the Roman world, if a person committed a crime or owed a significant debt they couldn't pay, they were thrown into debtor's prison and they were also issued a certificate of debt. And that certificate hung above their jail cell, reminding the world and themselves of their sin. And it also uh, had a price that must be paid on that certificate to secure their release. And so similarly, since God requires moral perfection to be in his presence, and since we can't help but break the law of God, 
because we're sinners by nature and by choice, we become eternally indebted to God. And the really bad news is we become eternally separated from Him. And the guilt associated with our sins, it hangs over our head and it crushes us. If we're honest, we all know what it feels like to experience the crushing weight of guilt. We all know what it's like to be up late at night assessing our lives and our conscience is being disturbed because of the guilt we feel. And then we're permanently enslaved by our sins in this sense. We all carry IOUs due to God that we can never repay in our own power. You know, here I'm reminded of an old friend of mine, an old roommate of mine who went out of state to a prestigious engineering school to get his bachelor's degree and a master's degree. And while there, he amassed a student loan debt that's equivalent to a second mortgage on a nice house. And he got a good job with the federal government, but even with that good job, he would tell me, Cameron, I can barely make ends meet. He said, right now, I'm only paying the minimum payments on my student loans. And he said, if I keep up this slow pace, I literally won't have this loan paid off before I'm dead. The only hope I've got, because I'm an employee of the federal government, is at some point down the road, they forgive the weight of this debt that's hanging over my head. And City Light, I say to you that the only hope we have of getting out from and under the sin debt that hangs over us and crushes us is if the person we've sinned against, the God of everything, shows mercy and forgives us of our sins. And the glorious news of the gospel is this is precisely what he did through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Notice this good news. Let this seep into your soul. Verse 14a says, By canceling the record of debt that stood against us, with its legal demands. Uh, This word cancel here, it literally means to cause something to cease to exist by obliteration. It means to destroy any evidence. In in layman's language, it means that God has put all of our our eternal IOUs that we owe him in the shredder. He's torn them apart. And then verse 14b reveals the the way by which he obliterated our record of sins. Paul says this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And so Paul is saying that a beautiful, scandalous exchange takes place here. Our certificate of debt shifts from the top of our heads and shifts over the head of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus switched places with us. He pardoned our sins by living a morally perfect life, a life that we can never live in our own power. And then he turns around and pays the penalty for our sins, penalty due to you and I, out of love for us. He died the death that we deserve to die. I love the way that one author put it. He said, Jesus paid a debt he didn't owe because humanity owed a corporate debt that we could never pay. See, on the cross, our records of sin were done away with through his redemptive act. Those IOUs were destroyed as Christ's body was destroyed on the cross. So listen, again, this is really good news. If you're in Christ, the next time the enemy comes to you with accusations, the next time he begins to whisper in your ear to bring up your past, to try to dig up, to drudge up that old record of debt, you remind him that that is an impossible task based on this text. 
Because your new reality in Jesus is your past, your present, and your future sins are eternally forgiven. You've got an eternally clean slate. And now your record is perfect in the eyes of God because the perfect righteousness of Christ has been credited to your account. Somebody better say amen this morning. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Now, Jesus not only frees us from the guilt associated with sin, he also frees us from the power of sin. I love this. The final verse, 15a says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. Now, as Jesus was dying on the cross, Satan and his minions thought victory was imminent. But in a shocking turn of events, the moment that Christ sucked in his very last breath, breathed his last breath, the devil, the demons, and the darkness were defeated forever. On the cross, Jesus is said here to have disarmed the rulers and authorities. And so in this context, rulers and authorities refer to demonic spiritual powers. And so in the stripping off of Christ's body on the cross... Uh, The power that darkness and death and the demons the devil had were stripped away forever. And not only did God strip them of their power, but he also made a public spectacle of them. Verse 15b says, And put them to open shame by triumphing over them and him. And so here, Paul's using Roman Roman military victory language. He's referencing a Roman victory parade when a famous, a brutal, powerful military general, a Roman general was victorious in battle. He would take the people that weren't killed, commanders, soldiers, and force them to march back into his home city in chains. And for the victor, it was a celebration. But for the captives being marched in there, it was shameful defeat. And the captives were eventually led to their death. You know, something similar took place in my home during college basketball season. Um, In case you weren't aware, my wife, Brittany, is a crazy uh, Kentucky Wildcat fan. And I'm a Tennessee volunteer fan. And for you Midwesterners, this is a fierce rivalry in the Southeastern Conference. And remarkably, a sheer miracle of God's grace, Tennessee beat Kentucky twice during the regular season this year. And this was such an incredibly rare feat that I wasn't content to celebrate silently. And and I kind of made the fatal mistake of celebrating and and shaming Brittany. And and the way I did this was as the the buzzer, the final buzzer sounded, I don't know what got a hold of me, probably not the Spirit of God, but I twerked on her a little bit. And I'm not a man who's known for his dancing prowess, but I did drop it like it was hot, didn't I, babe? Yeah, she, she saw it, unfortunately. And uh, she didn't speak to me for about an hour, and my act nearly led to my death in that moment. (laughs) Celebration of something being conquered. But listen, here's the application for verse 15. Uh, Since Jesus defeated the dark forces to the degree that they were stripped of their power and put to shame, if we are in Christ, we no longer have any reason to fear them. And listen, church, they no longer have any real power over us. So yes, evil and sin still remain. They're here. They influence us. The devil will so until the second coming of Christ. But here's the difference. Evil and sin no longer reign supreme in our life. They remain. We all sense it. We feel it. We, we face the pressure. But it doesn't have to reign. 
because of the power of the Holy Spirit. Sin can still influence us. It's probably influenced many of us this morning on the drive here. It did me. But it no longer has to have mastery over us. And as we grow in Christ's likeness, the beautiful news is that its influence diminishes in our lives. We never get to perfection, but we get increasingly made more and more like the perfect one as we submit ourselves to God's sanctification process. And so let me close by telling you how I saw this play out in one young lady's life. Early on in my seminary days, in my early 20s, I was a college and youth pastor, and we put on this basketball outreach. And in wonders this 19-year-old college girl. And my leaders and I had the privilege of connecting with her. And as we built trust, she began to open her life up to us. As we got close, we realized, though, that it was evident that her sin was ruling her life. Um, At that moment, she was living with a man she wasn't married to. She was selfish and materialistic. She was manipulative and lied compulsively. Yet, thankfully, the Spirit of God was working in her life. And I'll never forget the evening I had the privilege of, of leading her back to faith in Jesus. She, she had a prior conversion as a young lady, but she wanted to renew her faith in Christ. And I got to witness that at a Starbucks in Lexington, Kentucky. And we immediately begin to see spiritual fruit emerge in her life. She bravely left an unhealthy relationship, helped her get to a better spot. Over time, as God worked in her heart, selfishness was transformed into selflessness. And she began to leverage her time and her talents and her resources for the kingdom of God. And over time, dishonesty was turned into beautiful integrity as she grew in to be one of the most trustworthy women I've ever met. As the years went on and as seeing lost less and less of a grip on her life, she even entered the ministry, y'all, and she became the City Light Kids Coordinator for the West location. This is my wife, Brittany, I'm talking about. And, of course, prior to that, she gave me the great honor of allowing me to take her as my wife. And I can honestly say this, and I mean it. Though I started out maybe somewhere ahead of her in the spiritual journey, she's a far better Christian than I would ever hope to be. And so listen, church, my grandpa, when I go home and see him during Thanksgiving, when I wake up and see this man in the mirror every day, when I go home of the evening and see my beautiful wife looking back at me, I'm reminded of this great reality that we see in this text. Jesus is in the habit of taking what's spiritually dead and making it spiritually alive. And he does it by filling us with himself, giving us union with him, and freeing us of our sins. And the promise I want to make to you based on this word today is if you'll trust your life to him, he can work this kind of transformation in you. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, thank you for your grace. Lord, thank you for your mercy. Oh, Lord, I'm just so in tune with my sin, my inadequacies. They crush me sometimes. And, oh, Lord, the voice of the accuser comes. But, God, remind me, remind us of the newness of life we have in you. God, help us to take a look back and to see that though we're not what we want to be, we're not what we were. We praise God for that. And God, I'm praying that through this word, through your spirit, through the gospel made visible through baptisms, if there are people that don't know you, may you prick their heart with your spirit. And may they leave today changed. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.